1999 when I went to my first ever Christian conference. I've been a Christian for a little over a month, and a friend of mine invited me to attend this collegiate ministry conference called The Main Event. It took place on the campus of the University of Northern Iowa, where I was a student. And in many ways, I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to say that that collegiate conference, The Main Event, completely changed my life. It transformed me. But the funny thing is about that statement is I don't really remember much at all about the conference. I don't even remember the speaker's name. I don't remember the small group leader's names. I don't remember any of the songs that we sang the entire weekend. But what I do remember about that conference is that the passage we studied over the entire weekend is Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Before that weekend, my heart was alive. It just recently had become alive. I'd become a Christian again within the month. And so I'd just recently become alive. But God used this passage to ignite a fire in my soul. It's probably not too much of a stretch to say that the reason I'm here today, that the reason I'm in ministry, is because of this passage in Philippians chapter 3. Because God didn't just use that passage over the course of that weekend. Over the years that would come, he would constantly draw me back to Philippians chapter 3. And so it's my prayer this morning that God would use this passage in a mighty way again. And that he would speak through his word in Philippians chapter 3. So let's read this again. I think it's worth reading. This is the word of God. This is, if there's any part that you listen to today, let me always encourage you, listen to the reading of the word of God. This is his word. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me pray that God would bless this time here that we have together. Father, we are asking that as we study this passage in Philippians chapter 3, we are praying that you would rip open our hearts, that we would really, earnestly, genuinely, sincerely be able to say that everything else is lost compared to knowing Jesus Christ. We're praying that you would use this passage to help us understand that there is only one way to be saved, and it's through your son, Jesus Christ, and we want to make much of him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So Paul starts this passage in Philippians chapter three by saying, rejoice in the Lord. This is the theme that he's already touched on in the book of Philippians, this idea of rejoicing, and he will touch on it at length in chapter four. But perhaps it's something about this phrase, this idea that we are to rejoice in the Lord and not something else that leads Paul to give a warning. Specifically, he seems to be warning about a group of people that are commonly referred to as the Judaizers. He warns about them in verse 2. He says this, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The Judaizers were a group of people who insisted that in order to be a Christian, you must believe in Jesus and 
you must also follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Specifically, they were concerned about circumcision. You might think of their theology as Jesus plus something else theology. In other words, believe in Jesus, but then you have to do other things as well. Follow the Old Testament law. Be circumcised. But that cuts to the very core of Christianity. And really, that's the main concern of Paul in this passage. He warns the Philippians in verse 2. And he says, listen, be careful of these people. His language that he uses is filled with irony. He starts by warning the Philippians to look out for the dogs. In the Greco-Roman world, dogs were not man's best friend. They were scavengers. They were vicious animals. And so to call someone a dog was one of the greatest insults that you could give. Jews would commonly refer to Gentiles as dogs. And no doubt, Judaizers probably referred to those who would claim to be Christians and yet had not been circumcised as dogs. And yet Paul flips here. He gives an ironic statement. He says, the reality is that you Judaizers, you are the dogs. You are the dogs. He makes another ironic statement. He says, you are the evildoers. No doubt the Judaizers would have been intent on obeying the law. And yet Paul says, because you're adding Jesus plus something else theology, you are actually the evildoers. Not only that, not only are they the dogs, not only are they the evildoers, most devastatingly, he refers to them as mutilators of the flesh. Again, the Judaizers took great pride in circumcision. But what Paul says is, that circumcision is nothing more than a cutting of the flesh. It is faith in Christ that matters, not circumcision. And that's the point that he makes in verse 3. He says, verse 3, For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, we, meaning the Philippian believers, we are the real circumcision. Those who are part of the community of God has nothing to do with the cutting of the flesh and everything to do with believing in Christ. It has everything to do with worshiping by the Spirit of God, everything to do with glorying in Christ Jesus, or in other words, boasting in Christ Jesus alone. It has everything to do with putting no confidence in the flesh. These are the things that constitute a true follower of Christ. It's not following a list of rules. It's not being circumcised. It's worshiping by the Spirit. It's boasting in Christ alone. It's putting no confidence in the flesh. Or to say it another way, no longer do you become a part of the community of God by following rules, which is what they would have believed in the Old Testament. But now, Paul is saying, in the New Covenant, you become a part of the community of God by believing in Jesus Christ. This way of thinking flips everything on its head that Jews would have thought. This is radical. Commentator Moses Silver summarizes the radical nature of verses 2 and 3 by saying this, Judaizers are the new Gentiles, while Christian believers have become the true Jews. This is a radical passage. And Paul drives home the point in verse 3 by reminding us that to be a part of the community of God means that you put no confidence in the flesh. In reference to this idea of putting confidence in the flesh, John Calvin said, to place one's confidence or one's trust in anything outside of Christ is to put confidence in the flesh. Now hear me. All of us in this room have a tendency to put our confidence in the flesh. This has been true of humans from the very start. That we have reasons or we have a tendency to want to put our confidence in the flesh. And perhaps it's for that reason that Paul launches into verses 4 through 6. It's likely that the Judaizers were pointing to things that they have done and said, look at us, look at how we live. You should listen to us. And Paul says in verses 4 through 6, listen, if anyone has reasons to be confident in the flesh, it's me. Verse 4, he says this, Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, Paul is making a point here. He's saying if anyone should be confident based on their birth order or based on their natural position in life or based on their works, it is me. In verses 5 through 6, he gives seven reasons. I held up five, that's confusing. Seven reasons, right? He gives seven reasons why he should be confident in the flesh or why if anyone could be confident, it was him. Four of them are natural birth reasons. Three of them are his efforts, right? He starts by saying he was circumcised on the eighth day. Again, this is a huge issue for the Judaizers. But Paul says, listen, you may think that you have confidence because of your circumcision, but I was circumcised on the eighth day. According to the strictest interpretation of the law, I followed that. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Other Judaizers may have been circumcised later in life, but Paul is saying, if anyone has reasons to be confident in the flesh, it is me. I followed the strictest version of what it means to be circumcised. He goes on to say he's an Israelite. Some of the Judaizers likely were Gentiles who later came to be a part of the Israelite family. And Paul is saying, from birth, I've been a part of the Israelite family. He says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of two tribes that remained loyal to the Davidic covenant. It was the tribe from which the first king of Israel came. It was likely a badge of honor to be from the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You maybe heard the phrase before, he's a man's man. Well, this is probably the same way of saying in Hebrew. He's a Hebrew's Hebrew, right? He was, if anyone had a reason to boast in their Hebrewness, if that's a word, it was Paul. And Paul is saying, I have all of these natural advantages. If anyone would boast in their birth status, if anyone should be confident based on where they were born and the circumstances they were born in, it was Paul. But he goes on to say, it wasn't just his natural advantages, it was his efforts as well. Verse 5 tells us that as to the law, he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest of all Jewish groups about keeping the law. He's saying, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was zealous. I was persecuting the church. It wasn't just that he was a lukewarm follower of the Jewish faith. It wasn't just that he was a lukewarm Pharisee. He was persecuting the church. And on top of that, when it came to keeping the law, he was blameless. Not to say he was perfect, but no one could hold a candle to Paul. Listen, the cumulative effect of verses 4 through 6 is simply this, that if anyone had reasons to be confident in the flesh, if anyone had reason to boast, it was Paul. Maybe you've heard people say before, well, it doesn't really matter if you believe in Christ or if you're a Muslim or if you're a Jew or if you're a Buddhist. It's the sincerity of your faith that matters. Maybe you've heard someone say that before. Maybe you've even said that before. Well, Paul is the ultimate test case for that, right? No one was more religious than Paul. No one appears to have been more sincere about their faith than Paul. If there was anyone ever who had reasons to be confident based on the sincerity of their faith, it would have been Paul. And yet Paul makes it clear in verses 7 through 11, none of that mattered. None of it mattered. The only thing that matters, and this is true not just for Paul, this is true for us as well. The only thing that mattered to Paul is that he knew Jesus Christ. That's it. There are few passages of Scripture that are as powerful and as beautiful as Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Some have said that this is the most concise statement of the gospel in the New Testament. Others have said that this is the essence of Paul's theology. But whether you agree with those statements or not, it's inarguable that this is an important passage for our Christian faith. Look first at what Paul says in verse 7. Verse 7, he says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He seems to be referring specifically to these advantages that he just listed in verses 4 through 6. The fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day, it's a loss. The fact that he was an Israelite, the fact that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, the fact that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, it's a loss compared to knowing Christ. Keeping the law, being zealous, being a Pharisee, all of these things are a loss compared to knowing Christ. We're not saying those things are of no value. There might be some advantages to those things, but it's in comparison to knowing Christ that all of that is a loss. Now to be clear here, when Paul talks about knowing Christ, he's not talking about a head knowledge. He's not talking about an intellectual knowledge of Christ. He's talking about a personal, relational knowledge of Christ. He's talking about having a relationship with Christ, the type of relationship that can only come when you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you recognize that he is the great Savior. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about knowing Christ. And Paul says, listen, when it comes to all of those religious advantages I have, they are nothing, they are a loss compared to knowing Jesus. And surely there is a word for us in that this morning or this afternoon. Maybe there are religious advantages that you are clinging to. Maybe you grew up going to the church. Or maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Or maybe you were baptized, either as an infant or maybe later on in life. Or maybe you prayed a prayer at one time. Or maybe you've gone to church for a really long time. Or maybe on the outward, you have the appearance of being a super religious person. Again, we're not saying those things are of no value. We're just saying that they are a loss compared to knowing Christ because it is knowing Christ that matters. Do not make the mistake of placing your hope in your religious advantages. I know too many people over the years, I've known too many people over the years who have made the mistake of placing their hope in their religious background. Because they grew up in a church, because they had Christian parents, or because they were baptized, or because they prayed this prayer, They just assumed that they were right with God. But Paul reminds us here, what matters is not our religious background. It's not even the sincerity of our faith. It's the object of our faith. It's knowing Jesus Christ. So let's not make the assumption, even here today, that just because you are here this afternoon, that just because you've been a part of this church for a really long time, that just because you have lots of religious things lined up in your background, that that means that you are right with God. It is knowing Christ that matters. It's having a personal relationship with him. It's having submitted to him. It's having trusted in him. It's having believed in him. That's what matters. It is knowing Christ that matters. But not only that, Paul goes on to say this in verse 8. He even adds to that. In verse 8, he says this. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Indeed, Paul says everything is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. Everything else is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. The word that is used here for rubbish is an intense word. The King James Version translates it dung, which is probably a mild way of saying what it's trying to communicate. Others have said that maybe it communicates foul, smelly street garbage. So maybe when you think of rubbish, you think of a banana peel. We're talking about something more intense here. We're talking about foul, smelly street garbage. We're talking about dung. And Paul is saying, compared to knowing Christ, everything else is smelly garbage. Everything else is worthless. It's fit for the dogs. And again, there's a word for us in that. Knowing Christ is more important than anything else. 
Listen, I recognize when we gather here on a Sunday, every week we come here and there are things that we are placing our hope and our confidence in. And I don't know what you're placing your hope and your confidence in today. Maybe you're placing your hope and your confidence in your wealth. Maybe you have a lot of money. When you look at your bank account, that makes you feel hopeful. Or maybe you have a great job and you've placed your hope and your confidence in your job. Or maybe you have power. Maybe you're a powerful person in the community or in your workplace. And that's what you're placing your hope and your confidence in. Or maybe you're really smart and you're placing your hope and your confidence in your intellect. Or maybe you have a really great education. And that's what you're placing your hope and your confidence in. Or maybe you're really good looking, or maybe you have a lot of stuff, or maybe you have technology, or maybe you have all these other things that you're trusting and you're saying, this is what gives me confidence. This is what gives me hope. But hear me, I think Paul would say this, that all of that is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. It is knowing Christ alone, knowing Christ alone that gives us our identity. It's knowing Christ alone that gives us hope, that gives us a confidence in the future. Everything else is dung. It is foul-smelling street garbage compared to that. Now again, we're not saying those things are of no value. We're just saying that in comparison, in comparison, they're worthless. A few years ago, and, and to be honest, I don't remember if we were in Texas or Kentucky at the time, we were cleaning out one of our old closets, and we found this laptop that Tanya had from high school. I think it was a gateway laptop. Now, um, I don't know anything about gateways, okay? So if you work for gateway and you're like the biggest advocate of gateway, I'm all for it, all right? That's great. Like, I'm just saying this particular computer was probably a 1998 gateway. By the time we found it, I don't know when it was. We'll just say 2003 or something like that. By the time we found it, maybe later than that, I'm not sure. But somewhere along the line, by the time we discovered it, it was completely worthless compared to what we had, right? The computers that we had at that time made that gateway look like it was a dinosaur. It was so slow. It was so ridiculously slow. In fact, we couldn't even do anything with it. I can't remember if we threw it away or if we donated it. But certainly we were not going to sell it because by that point it had become worthless. And if you were to compare it to what we have now, it would be even more worthless. Right? In a world full of iPads and smartphones and lightning quick laptops, this 1998 gateway laptop would be a complete joke. Now, that's not to say it's of no value, right? If, for example, we were to take that computer to a place that has no computers, it might have some value. But compared to what we have now, it's when you compare it with what we have now that we realize it is truly rubbish. In the same way, we're not saying that those things that I just mentioned are of no value. We're not saying that there's not some value in money or education or a great job. But we're just saying in comparison to Christ, those things are worthless. Can you imagine... Can you imagine if I were to come on a Sunday morning and I were to bring that 98 gateway laptop? I don't have it, right? But if I were to bring it and I were to come in in the fellowship room afterwards and I just started boasting about it to all of you guys. I'm like, check this out. This 98 gateway, it's sweet, right? Like it takes a half hour to turn on. It's incredible. And if you spend two hours, your emails will all finally download. It's great, right? And if I had new other computer jokes to tell, I would tell them at this point, right? Like RAM and all that stuff, right? Like the point is like, if I did that, you would think, this guy's crazy, right? You would not think, oh yeah, we can really trust him as a leader. No, you would think this guy has no sense of judgment whatsoever. Does he not realize that that computer is worthless compared to what we have now? But hear me, functionally speaking, some of you are boasting in your 98 gateway laptops, right? You are boasting in things that compared to Christ have no value. You are placing your confidence or your hope in things like your position in society or your money or your stuff. 
right? Or you're boasting about your job or your power or your money or your smarts. But I'm telling you, you might as well start boasting in a 98 gateway laptop because compared to knowing Christ, those things are worthless. It is knowing Christ that matters. Do you not realize that all of those things, although they may be of some value, compared to knowing Christ, they are rubbish. They're rubbish. The only thing that matters, the only thing that will matter on the day that we die is do we know Christ? In fact, I would argue that that is the one thing that should define us now. It's not just an insurance policy for when we die, but this is the most important thing about us. Do we know Christ? Jesus says it this way, what good would it do for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? In Matthew 13, he tells this parable where he says, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a treasure hidden in the field. And a man in his joy, he finds the treasure. And then he goes and sells everything he has and he buys the field. I think Philippians 3 is making it clear. Jesus is the treasure. Right? Jesus is the treasure in the field. He is the one that makes everything else pale in comparison. He is the treasure we're selling everything for. Sometimes we talk about Jesus like he's just a part of the equation. Right? We say things like, oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, but that doesn't really define me. That's just a small part of what I do. And I understand that. I, even I'm not advocating that you should just go home and quit your job and listen to Tim Keller's sermons all day. Right? Or go listen to Chris Tomlin worship music all day. I'm, I'm not advocating that either. But what I am saying is, how in the world could we say that Jesus is just another part of our life? Right? He is the treasure in the field. He's the treasure in the field. Knowing him makes everything else seem like dung in comparison. And listen, I'm not telling you these things to try to make you feel guilty. Like, hey, you got to make Jesus your greatest priority. I'm just saying he's that much better. He's that much better. Right? Sometimes when we talk about these things, we start to feel guilty. And we're like, oh, yeah, I probably should make Jesus a higher priority. But if you're leaving today and you're feeling guilty, then I haven't done a good enough job of explaining this passage. This is not about a guilt trip. This is about look at how great Jesus is. Look at how amazing he is. Look at the fact that he is better than everything else. I'm telling you, following Jesus is better than everything else. Now maybe you think that Paul is overstating the case a little bit here. And maybe you think I'm overstating the case a little bit here. Why would Jesus be so valuable? And that's why I love verses 9 through 11. Because they remind us, this is why following Jesus is more important than anything else. Because he is the source of our justification He is the source of our sanctification. He is the source of our glorification. Verse 9, he's our justification. Look at what verse 9 says. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. By justification here, we mean the legal declaration that we are not guilty. The legal declaration that we have been declared righteous in the sight of God. We've been declared innocent. And verse 9 makes it clear that we are declared to be righteous through faith in Christ. It is not our own righteousness. It's not the sincerity of our faith. It's the object of our faith. It's Christ. Because of the righteousness of Christ, we can be counted as righteous before God. It's the great exchange, right? Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness if we place our faith in him. Because Christ lived a perfect life, we can stand before God and be declared not guilty. If we trust in him, his righteousness is given to us. That is justification. And that is why this Jesus plus something else theology cuts at the core of what Christianity teaches. 
And that is why Paul starts this passage by railing against the Judaizers. Because to make the argument that we are saved by Jesus plus something else cuts at the very core of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. Period. Not long after I became a Christian, I was invited to a Bible study that was a few miles off campus um, where I was going to school at the time. And honestly, I don't remember how we got invited to this Bible study. My friend Joshua and I somehow ended up at this Bible study with no one that we knew. And I don't know what they normally did at the Bible study, but it became quickly apparent that their goal in this Bible study was to convince us that in order to be saved, in order to be a true Christian, we had to be baptized as believers. Seems like an odd way of reaching out to people that you're trying to get to be a part of your Bible study, right? But basically for two hours, they just teamed up on us. And they said, you have to be baptized as believers if you want to be saved. Now, on the one hand, I think they were right that we were diminishing the importance of baptism. Both Joshua and I had been baptized as infants, and given where I would understand the Bible now, I think it was right that we should have been baptized as believers. And by the way, later on, I was baptized as a believer. But I think they were dead wrong to say that we must be baptized in order to be a true follower of Christ. They were dead wrong to say that in order to be saved, we must be baptized. That type of Jesus plus something else theology is at the very core of what Paul is preaching against here in Philippians chapter 3. You are not saved by faith in Jesus plus baptism. You are not saved by faith in Jesus plus circumcision. You are not saved by faith in Jesus plus good works or faith in Jesus plus anything else. Right? You are saved by faith in Christ alone. It's faith in Christ alone that makes us right with God. It is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is why we can be confident standing before God. That's why Paul says that we glory in Christ Jesus alone. He is the only one we can boast in because all credit, all glory, all honor goes to him. That doesn't mean that we don't obey, right? We've already talked about this at length in Philippians. If we are followers of Christ, if we are truly trusting him, we will want to live a different life. But we are not saved by faith in Jesus plus anything. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. He is the source of our justification. But he's also the source of our glorification, or sanctification, excuse me, verse 10. Verse 10, he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. By sanctification, we mean the process of becoming more like Jesus. The process of knowing Christ more, the process of sharing in his sufferings, the process of knowing his power in our life. When Paul says in verse 10 that he wants to know Christ, he's already known Christ for 30 years. What he means is not that he wants to come to know Christ in a first time sense. What he means is he wants to continue to know Christ more. In the same way that even if you've been married for how many ever years, you're always discovering something new about your spouse. You're always discovering something new about your parents or something new about your kids. In the same way, there's always something more, except on an infinitely grander scale, there's always something more to know about Christ. And Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to be more like Christ. So let me ask you a question today. Is that your goal also? Is your goal to know Christ more? Is your goal to know the power of Christ at work in your life? Is your goal to grow in Christ-likeness? Sometimes we think of Christianity as just this insurance policy against going to hell. But following Christ is so much more than that. It's becoming more like him. It's experiencing the joy of knowing him more. It's the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. It's seeing his power at work in us. 
I remember when I was in college, there was a worship song that we would sing that was particularly meaningful in light of this passage. The main line of the song went like this. And for the record, if you think I'm going to sing this, you're sadly deceived, right? Um, I'm all for singing with great gusto when I'm on the front row facing this way, right? But uh, a man's got to know his limitations. There will be no solos coming from me anytime soon, all right? But the main line of the song went like this, Lord, give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and to follow hard after you. Maybe you're familiar with that song. Maybe, maybe we've even sung it here. All the songs over the years start to blend together in my head. But I'm guessing at the very least you can relate to that, right? Give me one glorious ambition, one magnificent obsession to know and follow hard after Christ. So let me ask you a question, and I hope that you're willing to be honest with yourself. Is that your passion? Is that your magnificent obsession? Is that your glorious ambition to know and follow hard after Christ? And not just in theory, but in reality. Does your life reflect that you have one pure and holy passion to know and follow hard after Christ? Now, obviously, if you do not know Jesus, if you do not know Jesus, then you would not be following him. And listen, every Sunday, I always assume that there are at least some who are here today who don't actually know Christ. Maybe you came here as a visitor today and maybe this is the first time you've heard about Christ in a really long time or ever. Or maybe you've been going to church all of your life but your heart is hardened towards the things of God. And so as always, I just wanna appeal to you today. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Then worry about following him. But trust him. The only way that your sins can be forgiven, the only way that you can be made right with God, the only way that you will have eternity with God is if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And so as always, I just want to beg of you, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, turn to Christ. But if you are a Christian, are you pursuing him? Is he your magnificent obsession? Are there evidences of that pursuit in your life? After all, he is the treasure. Everything else is rubbish compared to knowing him. He is the source of our sanctification. He's also the source of our glorification. Look at verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The reason we have any hope that we will attain to the resurrection from the dead is because of the work of Christ. Because Christ rose from the dead, we too can have hope that we will conquer death. That through our union with Christ, death no longer has its sting. That we will be glorified with Christ. And when that happens, that is when life will truly start. Then we will see in full what now we only see in part. We long, as Christians, we should long for the day when things will be made right, when we will be with him, when there'll be no more sorrow or pain. And it is only in Christ that we have that hope because he is the source of our glorification. Listen, when I look back, on main event in October of 1999, I'm eternally grateful that we spent an entire work weekend looking at Philippians chapter three. And even though I don't remember one thing that the speaker said, I totally get how God used that weekend to change my life because this passage is like a stick of dynamite, right? If we get this, if we believe this to be true, if we really believe that there's nothing else that compares to Jesus, if we really believe that everything else is rubbish compared to him, then everything about us will be different. This passage reminds us that it's not Jesus plus anything that saves us. It's Christ alone that our hope is found. 
It reminds us that he is the source of our justification. He is the source of our sanctification. He is the source of our glorification. Everything else is a loss compared to knowing him. Everything else is rubbish. It's my prayer that in the days to come, we would be able to say with great earnestness and with great sincerity that we would be able to say the words of Philippians 3, verses 7 through 10, that we would be able to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I pray that that is the cry of our heart. Everything else is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is our prayer. This is our prayer that we would glory in your son alone. That we would worship by your spirit. That we would put no confidence in the flesh, but instead we would look to you. That we would live our lives that would reflect a reality. That we really do believe that everything else is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Think of the words of Jesus when he says, what good would it do to gain the whole world and yet forfeit our soul?" I think how true that is. And I wonder if maybe there are some here this morning who are doing everything they can to gain the whole world and in the, profit, in the process they're forfeiting their soul. I'm praying that this passage would light a fire underneath them and that they would realize that there's only one thing worth living for and that's your son, Jesus Christ. Not to say those other things have no value, it's just to say that in comparison, Christ is of supremely greater value. That we love you. And we pray that we would really believe this passage is true. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.